We are going to be in John chapter 7 this week, and if you, as you're turning there, uh, let me remind us, John is a photo album of the life and ministry of Jesus, and really, week after week after week, he turns the diamond of the greatness of who Jesus is and what he is about and how we can grow to know him. Tonight is no different, but let me say this passage uh, is interesting. I probably wrestled with this one more than I do with most because the narrative itself is about 50 verses, uh, but I didn't want to preach a 90-minute sermon. We can do that, by the way, just so, but I, I didn't want to do that uh, because it, it makes it hard even for all of us to, you're just not with me by the 89th minute. You're just not. I know you love the Lord, but it just gets hard. Anyway, long story longer, the what I decided to do was I decided to break this text up into two pieces. So we'll do 1 through 24 tonight, and then we'll pick up 25 to the end of the chapter uh, next week. And this passage is interesting because a, a lot of what you might call the preachable action is in the second half, but that doesn't mean that there's not plenty of meat on the bone in the first half. So let's go ahead and jump into it right here in verse 1. It said, after this... So this is all that we learned about last week. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that's pretty good reasoning. If people are trying to kill you, you might not want to go there, at least not yet. And so that is important, and we'll see more about that in verse 6, but that's why Jesus is not going to Judea at the moment. And of course, the Jews that he is talking about here uh, is the difficult, rabble-rousing group of people, the religious establishment, so on and so forth. And they have already had it with him here in chapter 7, and that is what is happening. Now, look at verse 2. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. You may have a translation that calls this the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and this is actually one of the most important feasts uh, that is happening at this time. There were three big ones, and, and this was uh, one of the biggest. And it celebrates the ingathering of the harvest of grapes and olives that is spoken about in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, so on and so forth. And it was, uh, it was a, it was a seven-day feast that occurred from the 15th to the 21st, first, that's a mouthful, of Tishri, which is in September and October. According to Josephus, you guys remember him, he is the uh, Jewish historian. He highlighted the beauty of this feast and its importance within the community. Basically, people would come to the city and they would have these makeshift structures that they made of light branches and they would live in them for a week. It's the festival of booths or tabernacles. And even the, 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 the structures that they built were pretty profound as well. That they were constructed according to rabbinical code, so to speak, and the the light showed through the very thin roofs that they had. That was a part of a way that they could see the stars and be reminded of how they'd wandered in the wilderness and God had still provided for them. So that was part of it. Uh, also, they had a, a very particular rite, and we'll hear more about this next week, where they would actually take uh, something in one hand and something in the other hand, and they would walk in a certain direction, and each of the things that they carried uh, would communicate something theologically. So, for example, in their right hands, they would carry something called a lulub or a lulab, 
which was a combination of three trees, a palm tree, a willow, and a myrtle, and that was emblematic of the stages that their ancestors journeyed through in the wilderness. And in their left hand, they carried something called an ethrog, which I gotta say has a Star Trek vibe to it, just saying that word. And it is a reminder of the land that God had brought them to uh, that had bountiful blessings. So the things that they were participating in, the structures that they built, the things that they carried, then what they said when they got closer, they would quote the Psalms, they would celebrate what the Lord had done, and then there was this particular thing that the priest would do that was kind of the payoff for the whole thing. And what that would be is that as they approached the pool of Siloam, the priest would come and dip his pitcher into the water, and the people would recite some beautiful words from Isaiah 12, 3 that says this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then the people would march back to the temple, enter through the water gate to the blast of priests' trumpets. Then the priest would circle the altar once again, walk up with the other priest to the platform, and then pour out the water that they had scooped up to symbolize the great joy of waters of salvation that was coming. And they would do this every day during this period. So everywhere you turn from the places that they were lying at to looking up through to carrying in both hands to what they said to what they saw with the priests, it was replete with symbolic imagery. And that's really important. It's really important for why Jesus does what he does in just a second that we see this week. And it's even more important for what Jesus says next week. And it's in the context of all that, you get verse 3. Look at this. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, there's a lot to digest right here. First of all, who are these people? Well, these are his actual half-brothers, okay? This is James and Joseph and Simon and uh, Judas, but not that one. And they were his half-brothers for the, all the reasons that you would think. And beyond that, what is very clear here is even though they get it together spiritually later, some of them go on to lead churches, others go on to, to write books of the Bible, so on and so forth, they do not have it together right here. And that is very important to understand. I'll say more about that in a second, but let's unpack another phrase that they are using here. What they are trying to do is they are trying to get Jesus to go up to this very strategic place where it's all going down, so to speak, and to put on the miracle show. Commentators are divided on exactly why they are trying to get him to do this. Some people think that it was a political motive on their behalf. Some people think it's maybe a little bit more altruistic, that, oh, they want to they see for themselves if he really is the Messiah because they've seen this other stuff. I don't know about that because of what Jesus says in just a moment. But what is clear is what John gives us there in verse 5, which is worth looking at again. For not even his brothers believed in him. So let's draw all that together in our first principle tonight. And that is that sometimes those closest to us just don't get what God is up to. I think we saw this two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. 
And one thing that's interesting throughout this story that John is telling, this thread that he weaves over and over and over, is some of these same principles come up repeatedly. And I think this should be a particular encouragement to those in the room. Some of you, you're the only Christian in your family. And you've been trying to explain for 20, 30, sometimes 40 years to your parents why you follow Jesus, why you parent the way you do, why you make the moves that you do, the moves that you don't. And sometimes they just don't get it. And you need to be encouraged in the midst of the discouragement that you're in good company. Because even Jesus' own family, at this point in their journey, they did not get what God was up to. So what do we do in those times of discouragement? Well, we go back to the Lord. We see no servant is above his master. If he went through this, it could happen to us. And we lean on the church. We lean on other Christians. We lean on our community that does get at least a part of what God is up to, and we press forward. And that's exactly what Jesus did, because look at verse 6, fascinating answer that he gives them here. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, let's park the bus and unpack this one as well. First thing to notice here, back in verse 6, the word that Jesus uses for time is the word kairos. It carries with it usually the idea of opportunity. And what he's getting at here, I think, as do many others, is he's saying, I don't want to have a premature triumphal entry. Because if I go up there right now in the way that you're suggesting and I do all the things at this very moment, well, they're already trying to kill me. This is going to speed that up and we're not doing that because it's not yet my time to give my life and die. Now, beyond that, this carries with it the same idea that David skillfully pointed us out back in uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And he warned us not to speak to our mothers the way that Jesus spoke to his at the wedding at Cana. I don't know if you remember that. But he told his mother it was not yet his time. It's the same idea. And so what he's getting at there, I think when you pull all this together is that Jesus operates on a divinely precise timetable. Divinely precise. And I, anytime I think about this concept, I, I don't know, most of you, or well, some of you won't know what I'm talking about, but it's still a worthy illustration. So trust me, what I'm about to say is true. I used to subscribe to this magazine. It was called Fast Company. And some of you do know about that, but it is, uh, it's for entrepreneurs, and there's a lot of overlap between that community and the, the, the church-starting community and so on and so forth. And I bet every five pages in that magazine, there was another ad for a very expensive watch. And you could just pick whoever it was. It could be Breitling, or it could be uh, Swiss Tudor, or it could be Rolex, all these different ones. And at the end of the day, they were all watches. Let's be honest. They're just watches. But part of how they would market them is the precision with which this watch told time. 
And at the end of the day, I would look at this, and I, one time I even Googled just to see how much these things were. They were between $1,550,000, okay, for a watch. And I was looking at this, and I was going, okay, but at the end of the day, it's just a watch, and it tells time. But I thought more about what they're trying to market there. They're marketing that precision and also the craftsmanship that this was built by hand. It will last forever. You hand it down to generations. So I wasn't ready to go drop 25K on a watch, all right? That's not where this story goes. I don't think my story's ever going to go in that direction, just for that matter. However, the idea of meticulous craftsmanship and precision, that I get. And that I am impressed by. And that I do see why that's worth some glossy paper in the entrepreneur magazine. But then I think about this text, and I think that Swiss Tudor and Breitling and Rolex have got nothing on Jesus. Because they can laser craft those dials all day long, and they will never operate with the kind of precision that Jesus Christ does. Because here's what's so fascinating. I don't know if you caught this in this passage here, but between verse 6, where I'm not going because it's not my time, and verse 10, I'm going, there doesn't seem to be a lot of passage of actual chronological time. But Jesus is so careful and so specific and so in charge and so sovereign over all things that to say that he is operating on a divinely precise timetable really doesn't do it justice. To say that he operates down to the nanosecond is still not exactly correct. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, exactly when he's doing it, exactly how he's doing it, and the smartest thing we can do with our lives and our schedules and our stories is to trust Jesus. Here's part of the challenge with that. His timetable, not always in sync with our timetable. And I was thinking of other examples in the Bible where this is the case. Moses, I'm pretty sure, would not have preferred to spend 40 years in the wilderness before he did what he did. I'm pretty sure I don't have to get him to verify that. Most people don't enjoy that kind of activity. You think about the other things that happen in the scriptures. Pretty sure Gideon would not have wanted to do what he did and winnow down his army. He didn't want to fight in the first place. Pretty sure Paul would not have preferred to spend all the time in prison that he did. He would have liked to orchestrate his ministry a little differently, I'm pretty sure. And yet at the end of the day, the sovereign plan of Jesus working itself out on divine precision timetables has led to where we are tonight. So if we get into a situation where we don't understand what God is up to, that's all of us, most of the time, or we get into a situation where we don't like the speed at which God is moving, that's all of us, most of the time, our best bet is to lean into him, not away from him. It's to go to him, not from him. It is to talk with him and pray to him, not complain, and ask for the Lord's grace time and time again, because if he operates with this much precision, we can trust that he is up to something good in our lives, even if we do not see it. 
I think this is one of the most challenging pieces of this passage. To see the way that Jesus operates, to see him go countercultural to what his family is saying, and to operate with this kind of precision and to do his work, his way, in his timing to get his result. And the wise and helpful and loving thing for us to do is to get on board with that as best we can. Will it be imperfect? You better believe it. That's all of us, all the time. But is God still loving and patient and compassionate and inviting us to bring our mess into his story? You better believe it. Because that's God all the time. Now let me go back and revisit one other thing here. Verse 7, I think it is. Yeah. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about, uh, about it that its works are evil. So what is he saying there? Well, he's saying at this moment, half-brothers, you guys are part of the world. And one commentator even suggested that part of the reason why they were trying to get Jesus to show up right when, he, when, they, when they were trying to get him to do it was to, to, to prove himself, even though he's already done that time and time again. And part of Jesus's, I'm not doing this now, was because he was not going to allow their unbelief to dictate his ministry. So this is a hard thing. And I think kind of as a drive-by principle, this kind of illustrates to us that when we have family or other people in our lives that don't get what God is leading us to do, I don't think we go out of our way to be troublesome. I certainly don't think we do that with a bad attitude. We don't look for trouble. There's plenty of that that finds us as it is. But we have to obey God rather than men. And I have known countless people that answered the call to God to go into full-time ministry, to go into overseas missions, all kinds of different things. And their family did not get it, but they had to do it because that's what God was leading them to do. And that is what Jesus is up to here. He is doing what God told him to do. Let me say one final thing here before we move on to this, from this. I'll just directly quote this one. This is from the Exalting Christ in John commentary. Sometimes we get frustrated when God doesn't do something on our timetable. We have everything planned, everything ready, but he fails to do our bidding. Could it be that God is doing something greater than we realize? Could it be that the God who has always existed may have a plan for you with your 20 or 40 or even 80 years of wisdom that you don't understand? To follow Jesus means to give up control of our timetable and our purpose. We turn over the keys, the map, and the schedule to him. I think I could just close in prayer right there if I needed to. If you're not convicted by that, I don't think we see what Jesus is doing here. But I'm not beating you up. I'm encouraging you. And my encouragement to you is particularly when you don't understand what God is doing and you don't understand the timeline in which he is doing it, that's when we need to trust Jesus the most. But it's also when Jesus comes through the most, isn't it? We'll see some more. Let's keep going. Verse 11. 
The Jews were looking for him at the feast. So I guess he's not dumb after all. I guess Jesus did know that there was a time and a way to do this. And they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So principally, and we won't spend much time on this one. There have always been conflicting opinions of Jesus, and there still are. I mean, I wish everybody got it. It's very clear, particularly in passages like two weeks ago and last week. Not everybody gets it. Not everybody's going to get it. So there will always be conflicting opinions. But I think we need to take this opportunity to do two things. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian... My humble question to you would be, not for talk back, we can talk about this later, but why not? What are your particular specific objections, if you want to call them that? My encouragement to you would be that you pin those down and we talk about those within this church. Because there are different opinions of Jesus. But after years and years of study of other religions and of Jesus himself and so on and so forth, I'm fully convinced he is who he said he was and is and will be. And if that's not yet your persuasion, we need to wrestle with that. And we need to engage that. And we're the kind of church we want to help you with that any way that we can. Without judgment, with patience, we want to walk with you. But we want to put before people the real Jesus of the Bible. Not some encumbered Jesus with all this other stuff attached to him, but the real Jesus of the Bible. That's what we want to do. And so that invitation is open to anyone for us to engage and dialogue about that. For those who are already convinced, my encouragement to you would be, look how awesome Jesus is. Even in this passage, Look at what he's doing. Look at who he is. Look at the way he speaks. Look at the authority that he is about to reveal and be encouraged. Your faith is not anchored in thin air. It is anchored in truth. And look at where that truth comes from. Look at verse 14. It says, and about the middle of the feast, strategic as well, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. Not an accident either. He didn't just stand on a box out in the street, though there could be a place for that. He didn't do that, though. He went exactly where he knew he could make the biggest impact and probably the biggest stir. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So really what they're saying there is, hey, we know this guy. He didn't go to any of the fancy rabbinical schools that all the rest of us did. He didn't do all the things that the rest of us did. And they had a question and a pushback about this kind of authority that he spoke with because it was obvious he knew the Bible. It was obvious that his teaching carried a weight that theirs didn't. It was obvious that, that he had some kind of authority from somewhere and they could not handle it. That's part of why they were trying to kill him. He upset their entire apple cart, their whole system. And Jesus answered that in verse 16. He said, so he answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And even that statement is important. Because you know what these guys did have? 
they had a long history and a deep knowledge of the God of the Bible sending prophet after prophet after prophet to speak as his mouthpiece. And so Jesus could have just said, and he makes these kinds of claims later, but the fact he doesn't make it here is of relevance. He doesn't just say, I am God. He points to where his authority came from. He's pointing out Old Testament fulfillment. And then he explains why they don't get it. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And there were plenty of fake messiahs around this time that spoke on their own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, which is what the fake messiahs were about. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So again, Jesus has this divinely precise timetable, and he has this divinely precise argumentation to speak directly to the audience that was in front of him. One commentator puts it like this. It says, in this passage, five reasons are set forth as to why Jesus' claims about himself are true. His supernatural uh, uh, knowledge originated from the Father himself. His teaching and knowledge could be confirmed by testing. That's what he's getting there in uh, verse 17. Verse 18, his actions demonstrated his selflessness. 19 and 20, his impact on the world was startling. And then finally, his deeds demonstrated his identity as the Son of God. So to take all that together, fourth principle is Jesus continues to reinforce that his authority and his ministry validation come from God. And friends, that is important. That is important in John's gospel. That was important in this moment. That's important today. Because there are people out there that honestly like to try to take the teachings of Jesus and just import them into this kind of patchwork quilt spirituality that they have built. Pulls in a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of Eastern thought, a little bit of uh, New Age thinking. Oh, well, we like Jesus. He's got some great things to say. You cannot do that with Jesus. And if you do that with Jesus, it's intellectually dishonest to the man's own claims, period. You either take Jesus for what he said about himself or you don't take him at all. Part of the challenge of Christianity, and Tim Keller was a master at pointing this out, is it, it is the most inclusive, exclusive religion that it is, that there is. It will take absolutely anyone but you have to take Jesus for who he is. And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So you cannot patchwork Jesus' ideas into a quilt and expect it to keep you theologically warm at night. It won't. You have to take him for who he is, and who he is, page after page after page, is sent with the authority of God, and he is the Son of God. You got to let Jesus be who he is and not who we want him to be. Speaking of which, let's come on to the home stretch of this here in 19 and following. Because what Jesus begins to do here, and he does this a lot, this is, this is kind of one of his things. He argues from the lesser to the greater. 
And he's going to do that with Moses, but he's also going to do that with circumcision. And the, and the rhetorical device that he's using here is basically saying, if you were on board with this, why are you not on board with this? Look at it. <coughs> Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? That seems like completely random. This is like an ADD situation here where it's like, truth, squirrels. Like that's what it, it seems like to me. But I think it shows the kind of crazy response that people would have to Jesus. Which again, just to go back to something I said, people that get patchworked into spirituality, they don't get this kind of response from people. He wasn't just a moral teacher. He was God. And look at how people respond to him. Now, Jesus goes back, 21 and following. Same idea, lesser to the greater. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. And what seems to be, <coughs> excuse me, that he's discussing there is the healing of the paralytic. That is what kind of began the freight train of persecution that, that came after Jesus. It, it began with that. And then in 22, he says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, follow this logic. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So here's what Jesus is saying. Let me give you the principle and then we'll unpack it. He's saying that he is the true and better Moses and that they were completely missing him because of their self-righteousness. And we would be wise to avoid that same mistake. In, in his own way there, and it might not be the way that we would frame this, Jesus is calling out their hypocrisy. He's saying, you guys, you got the law, and if a baby was born and then he gets circumcised on the eighth day, if he's born on the Sabbath, it's going to be on the Sabbath, or, or however that math works out. You're, if you're doing a circumcision on the Sabbath, nobody makes a big deal about that because you see that is given from God. But here I came along, and I didn't just heal one part of a guy's body. We're speaking figuratively here. I healed his whole body. And you guys are ready to kill me. Look at yourselves in the proverbial mirror. Do you not see the problem with this? And of course, we know that they didn't see it. And eventually Jesus is taken on a path where he is killed. But the point here about not being caught up with self-anything is one that we may need to pay really good attention to. Because here's the thing. We are experts in self. Experts, PhDs, every last one of us, in self-delusion, self-justification, self-righteousness, self-anything. And what we need is we need someone to come and raise us up above ourselves and give us what we really need. See, we don't need self-righteousness. 
We need imputed righteousness. We don't need to look across the proverbial fence and go, fence and go oh, I'm better than my neighbor because our neighbor is not the standard. Infinitely holy God is the standard. And self-righteousness leads to hell. Imputed righteousness leads to heaven. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he places his righteousness upon us, so to speak. He declares us judicially righteous even though we aren't. We get up above ourselves and we get a gift from the ultimate provider. We don't need self-delusion. We need the truth. We don't need simple platitudes from Instagram to try to make us feel better about decisions that we make. We need authoritative, divine, objective truth to help us figure out how to live in this world that's on fire. We don't need self-sufficiency. We need to realize that we are very, very, very insufficient even the most gifted and talented and wealthy and strong person in this room, we are very not self-sufficient. We need the ultimate provider to come along and help us. And I think when we see a passage like this, and we see the glory of Jesus on display from all of these angles, whether it's his resolve in the face of family who doesn't get it, or it's his divine, precise, divinely precise timetable on which he operates, or, or maybe just his clarion call of who he really is and that his authority comes from God, and that he is indeed the true and better Moses. Friends, if we really see Jesus for who he is, we see the folly of self-anything and the wisdom of Jesus everything. That's what so no matter where you are, no matter what you got going on, things in the foreground, things in the background, struggles everybody knows about, struggles nobody knows about, the answer is Jesus. The hope is Jesus. And he is available to us. You think about what that priest said, what those people said, that, that quote from Isaiah where they talked about the fact that there would be wells of salvation from which they can draw water. Friend, that well is available to us tonight. And his name is Jesus. So let's do this. Let me ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. I just want to take just a moment. And, and let's just talk to him. Let's just go to him in the silence of this moment. And just ask for his help. Whatever it is you need, ask for his help. Whatever sin you have to confess, bring it to the Lord. He already knows. Whatever praise you have to give, whatever gratitude you have to offer, Just take it to the Lord. Oh Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be able to 
come around the word together. To learn together. To be informed together. To be changed. To be helped. To be both simultaneously confronted and comforted. Only you can do that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take this word and that you would plant it deep in our hearts and that it would yield an abundant harvest and that every time we are tempted to trust in ourselves and our own resources, that we would be reminded of their lack and your ultimate provision that is ours in Christ. Lord, we pray for the conversations that will follow both in community group and husbands and wives and friends and parents and roommates and all the rest. And we pray that we would see what only you can do in response. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.